Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and welcome to day 13 of Testimony in Epic versus Apple. Will it be lucky? Will it be unlucky? Well, I guess we're going to have to go through the video to find out. And if you like these videos, we've got two playlists for you. One, our longer playlist, an antitrust epic, goes back to the very start of all this, back last August, where... Fortnite and Epic decided to, as I say, declare war on Apple and Google by deliberately breaching their contracts and then suing as if those contracts were illegal. And certainly that's what this litigation is all about. Speaking of the litigation itself, if you just want to follow the trial, we've got a shorter, still pretty long playlist for you that goes over as part of a brief summary and then a lot of testimony on each day of the trial. Now, before we get into day 13, in front of a number of these days, we've talked about housekeeping items, documents, interesting things that have happened behind the scenes. And today is no different. Apple has filed a motion based around a theory that has come up in this trial. Apple asks court to rule iOS is not an essential facility. Now, we've talked about that concept in this space that Epic had as part of its complaint against Apple said iOS and access to the iOS is so essential to people being allowed to do business that the court should require Apple to allow access on, and this goes kind of aside from the essential facility as Epic describes it, on commercially reasonable terms. That's how it's always been interpreted by the court. But as we talked about earlier in this series, essential facility doctrine is not in general thought of as a winner in antitrust law because the Supreme Court really hasn't opined on it in any context except train tracks. And so the judge here actually interjected, said, why aren't you briefing me on essential facility? And I had said in that video, as well as to Games Industry Biz, in the article that they asked me for quotes on, that it's not usually a winner. And so Epic probably thought it was essentially a toss in and that they weren't going to pursue it that hard. Or as Apple's filing says, at trial, Epic adduced no proof in support of this claim. On the contrary, Epic's principal expert expressly disclaimed any opinion on essential facility and, in response to a direct question from the court, rejected the notion that iOS should be treated as a public utility. The court should enter judgment for Apple on this claim. Filed as a motion for partial findings, Apple is pushing to split off the essential facilities charge from the other nine charges made in Epic's initial complaint. In essence, Apple believes it can win a quick victory on this specific point. It won't settle the case, but it would be an unexpected and embarrassing loss for Epic. I, I really don't think so. I mean, it always depends. Embarrassment is in the eye of the beholder, right? And if The Verge tells you it's embarrassing, maybe you think it is. In general, as you've probably seen from this case or others that you followed in virtual legality, one of the jobs of the initial complaint is to throw every single possible parameter you can think of as something that you could get redress from the court for. So you say it's a Sherman Act 1 violation. You say it's a Section 2 violation. You say it also violates some unfair competition laws. You say it's an essential facilities doctrine violation. You do all these various different things. And it's very often the case that parts of them get kicked out. In fact, we saw this with respect to Apple's countersuit, where they were seeking punitive damages and all sorts of problematic things to come after Epic as a willful bad actor. And the court basically said, this is a commercial breach case. Get rid of all that stuff. And if you win the case, then yes, you'll have those breach rights. And that's how this court case has proceeded. You get things that you try to get in your perfect world and they're thrown out in part and certainly essential facilities has not been something that Epic has pushed hard for because it's a very difficult thing to push hard for. 
even though The Verge describes it as a long-standing element of antitrust law, as we've talked about in this series alone, it might have a 1912 progenitor precedent. It isn't very well thought of in current jurisprudence, and the Supreme Court hasn't actually given an opinion on it in a very long time. It specifically avoids saying anything about essential facilities, even when a side brings it up. So I don't think it's a winner for Epic. It was very interesting that the judge wanted to be briefed on it further. I don't know whether she'll grant this, but certainly David Evans of Epic saying, no, 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 I don't think it's essential facilities, was very harmful to Epic's case on that particular point. And I suspect as soon as those words left Mr. Evans' mouth, Apple started writing this motion, and I can't really begrudge them that. Now let's get started with our testimony. We're back with live tweets from Addie Robertson of, again, The Verge. Unlucky day 13 of Epic versus Apple. I don't know. I feel pretty lucky to be talking about all this stuff. Starting in 10 minutes, App Store guy Michael Schmidt will return. We didn't really hear from him in yesterday's video slash testimony. Followed by another big Apple name, Craig Federighi. Then another Epic Witness, Dominique Hansen's. We won't get to that. Not Epic Witness, Expert Witness. We're in Apple's portion of the trial right now. Uh, and then we also have a little bit of other housekeeping. Judge giving an update on scheduling. She'll go through the case on Monday, the 24th, but we shouldn't expect a verdict right afterwards. She's got hundreds of other cases to deal with. As I said, it's going to be a matter of weeks, if not maybe months. Certainly, she's going to want to take her time making sure that her logic and the backing for the opinion that she's going to give in this very important case is as unimpeachable as possible. And yet she knows, as she said in the early motions, as everybody knows, the loser's going to appeal because there's no reason to stick in trial here. They're going to appeal and we'll see what happens from then. We also get an update on scheduling for Tim Cook. We're expecting him at the start of the day on Friday per Apple's lawyer. He was not the Apple witness that had to back out. We don't actually have an identity there because it was blocked from uh, public access. But Tim Cook is expected to speak. And obviously that will be a very big day for both Apple and Epic. It's going to be Epic's last swing at trying to nail Apple here. And before we get started here, we're going to see a common theme in the testimony that we've got today. First of all, I think Apple's got two very strong witnesses for itself. And that wasn't the case in certain respects with Mr. Schiller, as we talked about yesterday. But also that Epic is going to make some good inroads on some various points that these witnesses are going to make. But as you can see from my thumbnail, I've titled this Losing the Forest for the Apple Trees. And that's because I think we're getting to the point in the trial where if you don't think Epic has made their case, and I think it's a pretty close question, I have my doubts that they have in their own portion they aren't really making more of a case with what they're doing with respect to Apple's witnesses. They're making Apple look bad in certain respects. And like I said, some of their questioning is good, but they aren't really helping to build those foundational blocks as to why Apple is a monopolist, first and foremost. That's the threshold question. And then why and how they're using that monopoly power to harm not competitors, not developers, not Epic, but the actual functional act of competition itself. And so you're seeing here now a little bit more of a public relations type situation. I don't know whether Epic believes that on their side. Obviously, it would all be speculation from the outside in. But it's very difficult for me to see a total Epic victory on the merits here. Uh, but certainly they could squeeze out, as we've talked about, an anti-steering rule injunction uh, and potentially other small concessions that could still be very useful to them. So keep that in mind as we go over today's testimony, because I do think Epic is not really building their case any longer with respect to this cross-examination or these Apple witnesses, but instead just trying to poke holes at Apple and potentially save their 
ammunition for a battle later on in front of legislatures and things like EU officials. Apple's head of games business for the App Store, Michael Schmidt, is up now being questioned by Apple's lawyer. And I like this. Do you personally play video games? Maybe too much, Schmidt says. The lawyer asks him how many games he's played in his life. Smith, uncertain, Schmidt, I assume, you want me to start in like 1992? And already you get a sense that this witness is perhaps not uh, the hardened executive that we heard from with respect to other Apple witnesses, with respect to other Epic witnesses. He actually comes across a little bit more chill, maybe even a little bit more like Tim Sweeney, who I thought presented fairly well on the first couple of days in terms of tone and mannerism. Uh, You can't help but like some of Schmidt's answers here just as a person outside of the case uh, because of things like this. And certainly I think the game developer liaison is supposed to be an affable position. uh, And it certainly seems like he comes across uh, that way. Apparently Schmidt was five years old when he started playing and he's played thousands of games. Yeah, if you're following virtual reality, imagine how you would answer this in open court. You're not allowed to lie uh, and you got to give some kind of reference to what number it is. Leave that number as a comment to this video. I have no idea what mine would be. I would have to say thousands as well. I don't know if I could get more granular than that. Maybe you can uh, in the comments. Schmidt is explaining that Apple considers game and app developers very separate. One typically doesn't work on the other. Game developers are more on the bleeding edge of pushing iOS graphics and games focus more on in-app purchases while apps are moving towards subscriptions. And I think that's interesting as well. You know, we've talked about Roblox at length, and yes, they will pop up again. There is no day in Epic versus Apple that doesn't involve me saying the word Roblox, so this will be no different. But he's noting that in terms of business model, he sees games, which he's kind of responsible for. He's a liaison to the game developers, as not only different in what they need out of the operating system, which we would expect, that they need graphics, they need different things than an application, but also in the way that they monetize those. That apps, enterprise applications specifically, are getting a lot more used to software as a service. They subscribe to this thing. You think of Office 365, those kinds of things. And games are free to play with tokens or are some other freemium kind of setup. And that's actually a difference in how they are monetized. And that could also add to the Roblox conversation because Roblox is monetized as we would expect a game to be for the most part. Is there a way for a user to avoid Apple's commission making purchases? A game developer can make the purchase available on many platforms, says Schmidt. He gives Hearthstone, Roblox, and Candy Crush as examples. Unlike some of the other testimony, he's ready to go. Delving into the Hearthstone example, Schmidt shows a video he recorded a few days ago. He launches Hearthstone on iOS and notes he has no card packs, goes to mobile Safari where he's logged into Battle.net, buys the pack through the web, and returns to the native app, presumably, with a card pack in hand. And this is a pretty good piece of testimony. One of the things that Epic was trying to establish was that there was all this friction in moving outside of the ecosystem to go and buy things. And as we talked about in this space, one of the questions there was, it's not Apple's fault, it's the developer's fault. If Candy Crush and King and Activision make it difficult for you to get in there and buy something from them, that's already leaving Apple's ecosystem and it's not on Apple to make sure it's smooth. Hearthstone appears to be smoother, but we'll note when we get to Candy Crush that Epic has complaints again about what's being shown in this video. We're going to another pre-recorded demo, this one of Candy Crush. 
crush. Schmidt gets around the problem Epic highlighted, no mobile support for the game's web version, by manually requesting the desktop version of the site. And what's interesting here is that a couple of commenters to my earlier video said that this is exactly what was happening, that if you go and access it from your iPhone, it brings up the mobile version, sends you over to the app, but you can do what you need to do if you go over to the desktop version, which admittedly is additional friction, but we'll see what Schmidt has to say about that to Epic as part of his testimony. Schmidt puts the blame on King for not supporting mobile browsers. He says it made an active choice to try to push people towards the native mobile apps. Does Apple discourage making purchases available on the web? Absolutely not. And discourage is different from encourage, as is obvious from the two words, but Apple is making an important distinction. We do not say you shouldn't buy these things elsewhere. We do not add active roadblocks to you buying them elsewhere. What we do is we don't allow you to advertise that you can buy them elsewhere on our store shelf, which again is Apple's metaphor. Maybe you disagree with it and that will change your perspective of the case. But Apple's saying it's totally fine with us if you go out to Hearthstone and you buy a pack. Yes, it requires an extra button push. They're pushing people to the apps, presumably because they want to get more money and they're okay with Apple and their functionality getting the 30% of a higher amount of money with less friction. Interesting to see exactly what King would have to say about this or Activision, but unfortunately they are not witnesses in this case. Schmidt goes into the ways developers get help from Apple, business and marketing support, engineering support, and developer tools and products. We want to be the best platform to develop a game or app in the world. He wants to be more than a check mark. We want to be the primary platform that developers want to build for. And again, we've seen this before, but this is the fundamental disconnect between Epic and Apple and whether or not Apple should have things enforced against it by the court. Is Apple trying to create illegal stickiness? Are they trying to trap people? Or are they effectively trying to quote unquote trap people with a good product? Or even, if you want to be a little bit more cynical, with good marketing about what that product might be or how you feel about that product? And certainly this is a great answer. Look, we want to be sticky. We want to retain users. We want to gather users. We want to be a dominant platform because we want to be the best at what we're offering is exactly what antitrust law and antitrust jurisprudence says is allowable and beneficial to the American people. And that's what the law is designed to protect is that consumer and not just competitors. So it's very interesting to see. It's a good answer again by Mr. Schmidt. From day one, when we began supporting Fortnite on the store, we had engineering engaging with Epic, not just on the game, but on the Unreal Engine. And that was support that grew over time, over phone, email, and in person at Epic's HQ. One of Epic's witnesses had previously complained about having to re-engineer Fortnite on short notice to reduce its memory footprint at iOS. Schmidt appears to refer to the same incident, but says Apple was working closely with Epic to help. Schmidt also points to Apple doing promotion for new Fortnite seasons and over other content on the App Store and its social channels. Apple sent over 500 million marketing communications about Fortnite. And this is where you see two things, right? One, you see Apple trying to prove its case that it deserves some amount of money, that it isn't just handing off, okay, you've got a Fortnite, thank you, we'll take our processing fee, please go about your business and good luck. They're helping engineer, they're helping solve problems, they're helping make it work. But the other thing that you are seeing is exactly why percentage-based commissions can work 
And certainly there are instances where you don't like them. You get to a storefront and this is something that people advertise on TV. Oh, we don't charge commission if you're at an auto dealer, say, because you don't like that pressure. You don't like somebody having to have their livelihood based on you deciding to buy that car or appliance or what have you. But certainly between corporations and enterprises, what it does is it gets people rowing in the same direction. Apple didn't send 500 million communications out of the goodness of its heart. It sent 500 communications because it knew it would make money when Epic makes money. And so you're all in this together. And in general, that's something that we like to see. And Epic is fighting against it. It's trying to say Apple didn't do anything to earn its money. Whether or not you believe that is going to come down to how you feel about these two companies. Unfortunately, if you're on Epic's side of this particular argument, the court is going to be willing to side with Apple if it looks like they had remotely reasonable business reasons for doing what they did. How much did Apple spend on marketing support for Fortnite? On the 11 months before the ban, we spent just under a million dollars. It was far more than any other game I'd worked on at that point and more than I've seen on any game since. A million dollars is not nothing. I mean, it's not a ton of money if you're Apple and Epic will come up and cross and say, you made a lot more than that from Fortnite, didn't you? That's a pretty good deal. And that's all correct, but it's certainly not MasterCard. It's certainly not PayPal doing whatever it is that they don't do in order to help facilitate the sales of your product or service. And so I think he continues to make good points. I do think he's a pretty strong witness for Apple on this score. The overall relationship with Fortnite on the store? Fairly tumultuous, he says. There was a lot of good times and a lot of really stressful times, but it was absolutely a net positive. It was on the store, says Schmidt. Fortnite was the hottest game at the time. I personally played Fortnite, says Schmidt. I like the past tense there. One wonders exactly how many Apple people still play with Epic. So did his son and wife. It was a really awesome thing to be able to bring to users on the App Store. And one can imagine that to be entirely true. Apple made money. Epic made money. Epic wants Apple to make less money. And that's the fight here. But before that point in time, everybody was going in the same direction. Now, Fairly Tumultuous is an interesting kind of descriptor for working on Fortnite. I suspect based on the emails we've seen, based on the public pressure Tim Sweeney puts out, as well as the private pressure he uses on folks like Tim Cook and higher-ups at Apple, that it is a pressure-filled relationship, especially when Mr. Sweeney knows he has a very, very valuable product in Fortnite that Apple very much wants to be in business with. Uh, so I can imagine it's tumultuous. Certainly a lot of business relationships are. That doesn't really speak one way or the other about it, except to say that, again, Apple does appear to be doing something to earn something more than the 3% Epic would potentially like to pay them. A March 27th, 2019 email chain is getting pulled up now. It almost feels like they're abusing expedite requests due to a systemic issue on their end, one of Schmidt's colleagues said. Schmidt says he doesn't agree that they were abusing the system, but they weren't addressing issues. Schmidt compares Epic's request pattern to him always being late to things, even if he had a reasonable excuse every time. If you know you're always late, you should start planning things earlier. And to be clear, his testimony continues, I'm still always late to things. Again, he just comes across as jovial and affable in a way that's nice to see when you've had a lot of snarky experts, when you've had a lot of stonewalling executives. Uh, this gentleman does appear to be responsible for relationship management. You can see how he fills uh, that role. And he makes a good point, right? So he actually isn't throwing Epic under the bus here. This isn't as bad as some of the other Apple's executives' testimony. Uh, he has in front of him an email where a colleague says, Epic's abusing the expedite system. We saw as part of the motions when Epic said, Apple does nothing for us. And Apple responded by saying, we've done a jillion expedite motions for you. We've done all this stuff for you. That Epic clearly was using it more than others. 
Also, they were one of the most popular games uh, on the iPhone and they were making Apple a lot of money. So it makes sense for both parties. But Schmidt's analogy here makes a lot of sense and is easily understandable by technical savant and layperson alike, which says, you know, that person that's always late. And you say, well, well, what if you left five minutes earlier? Yeah, that might solve it, but I never do it. And that's just the way it is. So Epic's not abusing the systems. They just got a planning issue at the back end. And Schmidt, because he's responsible for relationship management, says, ah, you know, developers. And again, you can't help but like that kind of testimony. Another email where Epic effusively thanks Apple for what Schmidt recalls was supporting crossover between Epic's Fortnite and House Party apps. Uh, he was then asked about how Ep- Epic feels about him, which got objected to. And yeah, that's not a great question. You don't know how another party feels about you. But again, this is useful. Apple's trying to say, look, before all this happened, before Epic decided it wanted to get that 30% come hell or high water, they were at our conferences. They were getting expedite requests more than anybody else. They were getting millions of dollars of marketing and communications and partnership with Apple. They sent emails saying how much they loved us and our services. And only now when they think they can get out of this bill, when they think they cannot pay us for everything that we've rendered and will continue to render for them if they comply with our app store guidelines, are they fighting this fight, your honor? And again, I think it's it's pretty effective to go and show that they were happy with things up until now. But let's see what Epic does. Epic is up now cross-examining Schmidt. Asks if Apple offers special commission deals to anyone. They have not, says Schmidt, on the gaming side. And we don't have any reason to believe that's incorrect. Obviously, we don't know what Apple's doing internally, but we haven't seen gaming side deals for any specific game developer or publisher pop out of any of this. You could argue Roblox gets special treatment if you think that it is analogous to the Epic Game Store or some other store within a store kind of concept. I don't think it's that way. I think it's a red herring in Blind Alley. But nobody else has gotten kind of the Amazon deal where you have the video partner program where you have different kinds of things like that. Lawyer is now discussing sign-in with Apple, which lets users sign up for apps without creating an account with developers as she basically characterizes it. Schmidt says it's more nuanced than she describes. Lawyer says at one point this caused problems because Epic wasn't able to get information. It needed to comply with child protection laws and Apple, she says, wasn't helpful. Schmidt doesn't offer more detail here, suggests he's not familiar with it. Going back to the cross-platform claims, Lawyer points to Apple's anti-steering rules, but she and Schmidt start talking over each other until Judge steps in and tells them to cut it out. And Schmidt appears to be a talker here. This pops up a bit here on day 13 with people talking over each other. Certainly the the trial has dragged on. The lawyers are human beings and they're on day 13, uh, just like the people that are following it, including Ms. Robertson, including us here in Virtual Legality. Now, I might be having more fun with it than some other people that are reporting as we'll see at the tail end of this video. Uh, But certainly you get into these kinds of situations where People do talk over each other. Maybe the courtroom gets a little bit more testy. And that can happen, especially on cross-examination. We've got sign in here. Going back to the cross-platform claims, lawyer points to Apple's anti-steering rules. But she and Schmidt start talking over each other, as we just talked about. Schmidt says he wasn't familiar with last week's court's Candy Crush saga, if you will, when he made his video. Epic's lawyer says he didn't show the process of actually logging into King's site. He says, I can't recall exactly how I logged in. And Epic says users who sign up for Candy Crush through Apple's sign-in service can't actually use the process he showed in his video, which is interesting, right? And that does show that you have a certain amount of stickiness if you sign in with Apple, which Apple encourages, that maybe you wouldn't have if you didn't. But I think Schmidt has a good answer to that, which is similar to the answers we talked about 
earlier in virtual legality. The developer's choice was to push users towards the native app, Schmidt says, but at the lawyer's insistence, he admits that Apple would stop King from telling iOS app users that they can buy currency elsewhere. Epic Council says that request desktop is not a widely known feature for iOS users, but Schmidt disagrees. I'm glossing over a lot of back and forth, says Ms. Robertson, over the precise capabilities of the feature, but Epic contends it's super awkward. Schmidt's counter, again, is that all this friction is on the developer side. They could have made the signing process easier, and they could have supported sign-in with Apple if they wanted, he says. And I think that's actually a really good argument that you can support these things. You can make that friction free. You can do those things on the developer side. And more importantly, regardless of how you think this winds up for the consumer experience, the question is whose burden is it? Whose duty is it to make that friction free? We're in a lawsuit about Apple and Apple creating stickiness and Apple creating friction and Apple abusing monopoly power. Apple lets people go out, and then if King or someone else makes it difficult to actually access how to buy things on their service, I got to look at Apple and say, it's not your fault. And I think that's ultimately the winner here. If I were on the Epic side, I'd say, yeah, this isn't a winner. Let's move on. Going to Hearthstone, there's some confusion about whether it lets you buy packs directly through the App Store, known as Promoted Purchases or only through the app itself. Either way, lawyer notes Blizzard can't tell people if they visit its website. And that's true. Judge asks if the cost for card packs is the same on the native app and the web. Schmidt says they're both $2.99, so the consumer pays the same. Schmidt says he thinks actually you spend more on the website because there's separate tax. This kind of thing, the same price, is, in my opinion, one of the absolute killer facts for Epic in this particular case. As we've talked about, When we are talking about antitrust, when we are talking about anti-competitive activity, the primary indicia of that in American jurisprudence is somebody getting hurt at the consumer level, consumer welfare. And Epic comes out here and says, if it wasn't 30%, it would be 12% and developers could be advantaged. They have to show that developers for purposes of this conversation are effectively the consumers and where consumer welfare should live. The problem is the courts don't usually want to get into enterprise fights. Businesses can set the terms. Businesses are sophisticated. Businesses can decide to enter or not enter into really long contracts. They have counsel reading them. That isn't the same kind of relationship that somebody selling a product, even a software product with a big long EULA, has to a consumer. And so Epic Game Store having games that were going to be sold at the same price on Steam that they then buy as an exclusive and sell at the same price on Epic or Hearthstone packs not having to pay 30% but still charging $2.99 suggest that even changing all of this, the court stepping in and saying, okay, 30% no longer, it's 12%, it's 3% isn't going to change the consumer experience. And if Epic can't show that, that is a big, big problem for their end of the day case here. And the judge is interested in this kind of thing. The judge is very interested in, can you leave? Can you go buy it anyway? It doesn't appear to be an essential facility as we talked about at the top of this video. If you can get it elsewhere, and if you can go and you buy it and it doesn't charge 30% and the developer or publisher just gets more, how does any of this affect the consumer? Publishers, developers, you can decide what to charge for your thing. You can decide what, if you're selling separate currencies, those currencies buy in your ecosystem. And you can decide whether or not you want access to the Apple iOS and to pay 30% or not. You don't have to. And so this type of thing, I think, is very, very effective for Apple, even though Epic is pointing out certain bits of friction. I don't think they really fall at Apple's feet for the most part. As promised, 
Lawyer is asking whether Roblox could have submitted itself as not a game, but an app. Schmidt says maybe Apple would overrule that classification though. And then they actually point out the Verge article from Addy Robertson that we've talked about earlier in this series. And just to be clear, editorializing from Ms. Robertson, Apple's witness testimony is absolutely all over the place with Roblox. Schmidt just said Apple would force it to classify as a game. An earlier Apple exec claimed it was categorized as an app when it wasn't. And a different third Apple executive said he would consider it a game regardless of what it was classified as. What are you going to do? The point that I would make if I were Apple is that none of this actually matters, that Roblox is easily distinguishable from a separate app store, and yet here we are. Anyway, we're now reading through Apple's developer agreements. We've got Leah Nyland here. She's reading from section 7.1 of the agreement. It allows Apple to withhold payments due to developers in certain circumstances. And then we got Shannon Liao. Part of the line includes if you or other devs encouraged suspicious behavior. Epic lawyer grilling Schmidt on how encouraged is defined. I think it's pretty clear, I would imagine. There is no definition, says Schmidt. He admits he doesn't habitually read the developer agreement and doesn't know. And this is a very effective line of attack. It just might not be an effective line of attack for Epic's case here. We've talked about it at length that the Apple developer guidelines, the Apple undoubtedly developer agreement, the Steam agreement, the Twitch agreement, Facebook, YouTube, wherever have written their terms of service, have written their contractual terms, which really for the most part are non-negotiable unless you're a huge corporation, and includes these vagaries. So undoubtedly it looks like section 7.1 says something along the lines of you're in breach or you could get in trouble if you encourage your users to do something bad. If you encourage them to have, I believe it says suspicious behavior here and you're grilled in court to say, what the heck does that mean? And that's right. That's what a lawyer would do. If we were sitting, if I represented one of those big giant corporations that got to negotiate certain provisions of this, we would sit there and say, what define this? What do you mean by this? And I do that as a day job. That's what we do in contracts. We say, okay, what are you trying to get at? What are you worried about here? Because we need some quantification over what this means, because otherwise this gives you this broad swath of ability to just ding us for reasons that we don't understand and that maybe you don't understand sitting here today. That's proper. That's good. Hey, point out that Apple's rules, Apple's contracts, Apple's terms have these ambiguities and these vagaries, and that's not great. But it also doesn't make them monopolists first, and it doesn't make them using illegal monopoly power, especially when we're talking about businesses like Epic that has billions of dollars and gets to look at these things and decide whether they're okay with entering into them or not. Apparently, someone at Apple semi-jokingly suggested that Epic add a Steve Jobs skin called the Innovator to Fortnite, and it was serious enough that Schmidt followed up on it. I bring this up for no reason in terms of legal importance, except to note that apparently the relationship was a little bit smoother than it was starting last August when you got Apple being made fun of in both free Fortnite campaigns and with skins and with everything else. Uh, Certainly, there was a time where Apple didn't think that Epic was going to be their mortal enemies in court. That ends Mr. Schmidt's testimony. And now we get into Apple's security guy. We talked about Epic's security guy. We talked last week about how he made some claims that I don't think were properly backed up by documentation, including the claims that Android and iOS have roughly the same exposure to malware and problems uh, with those kinds of things. And that if you're going to bring that kind of claim, you have to bring some backing. Uh, Here we have Craig Federighi on the stand. Federighi is Apple's software engineering head and one of the biggest names testifying for Apple alongside Phil Schiller yesterday and Tim Cook expected on Friday. Apple's lawyer asks Federighi to define an operating system. 
he describes the operating system as an engine, which lets him extend into the idea that a similar motor could be put in a car or a small plane or lots of very different products. Federighi says adding third-party apps tremendously affected how Apple thinks about security. We envisioned people would download lots of little apps to solve all kinds of problems, he said, compared to an early desktop computer user particularly. Federighi says of app installation, we wanted to make that something users could be do very easily without being particularly experienced or thoughtful about the security issues around what they were doing. Malware makers and operators pick targets largely based on scale and opportunity. How often is an attacker likely to have contact with a user? In a way, iPhone users are more prone to download apps by far than typical Mac or PC users, that the ecosystem of a phone has been designed, and this is important, in part by Apple, there's an app for that, to encourage users to change and modify the functionality of their phone on the fly, on a regular basis, in a way that Federighi says here isn't the same way they see, on a behavioral basis, people using the personal computer, the the Mac uh, computer. And I think that's probably right on an actual quantifiable metric. I probably download more apps than I do huge software packages. Certainly the PC, I feel, is more robust on things. And, and that's why people come into my comments and explain why the Apple ecosystem is terrible and the walls should come down, uh, etc. Now, Mr. Federighi says iPhones are very attractive targets. They are very personal devices that are with you all the time. They have some of your most personal information, your contacts, your photos, but also other things. They have cameras on them, microphones. They're capable of knowing your location. People use them to unlock things. All of these things make access or control of these devices potentially incredibly valuable to an attacker. And a lot of this is also true for the PC, but certainly phones have taken on, uh, I think, an even more important part of our daily lives over computers insofar as they go with us. And that's what Apple's trying to establish. Uh, Whether or not that is distinguishable from Mac, we'll see. He actually has to throw Mac a little bit under the bus. Now, Ms. Robertson here properly points out Federighi is implicitly going up against computer science expert James Mickens. That's Epic's expert. Epic called him to testify that iOS and Mac OS were similar products. And the most important security was in the OS, not the App Store. Federighi, by contrast, says, we try to stack up many layers of defense. And he's talking about tactics like social engineering that trick people into voluntarily letting malware in. Mickens also said that code signatures could be enough to let people trust an app without the need for app review. Federighi doesn't agree with that either. And let's take a step back. So we've got a little bit of a battle of the experts here. Federighi is actually an Apple person and is not a hired expert to talk on these things. But I think it's important to know the stance of the law here, right? So even if you have a clash here, even if you can't decide whether Mickens or Federighi is correct, the court has to be willing, if it's going to impose an injunction, if it's going to use its powers to stop Apple from doing something, it has to come to the conclusion that Federighi is so wrong that Apple should not be allowed to do these things, that app review doesn't matter, that another app store isn't going to violate this security when Apple's own security expert, who for purposes of acting under oath and giving this testimony, we have to assume is telling the truth about what he thinks here. And Apple has not indicated in any respect that they don't think app review does anything, that app review is an important part of the process, that the signature process that Mickens was relying on isn't significant enough, that the technical compatibility of the operating system and checking for specific bits of code and malware is not significant enough. And if it is significant, that it can be increased with additional defense. Even Mickens said, yeah, app review probably adds something. He just found it to be marginal. Is the court going to substitute the decision-making of Apple in saying that it is important with its own by saying it's not important? And some jurisdictions, especially like in Europe, you'll get a court that is more willing to do that. 
in the Americas, in the United States, I shouldn't say the whole Americas, just here, just in the United States, you've got judges that are much more reluctant in general when looking at business rules like this to substitute business decisions and value judgments for their own. So ultimately, this fight is going to have to be one where if the judge is going to side with Epic on this score, she's going to have to determine that App Review really doesn't do anything. Apple doesn't need to be concerned about it. And Mickens is right. Federighi now lays out the ways that human app review is part of the security process for iOS. An app developer has to tell human reviewers what it does, and the human reviewer can check the app to make sure it matches. Federighi says that frustrates one major vector, impersonation. An attacker cannot, with any long-term success, hope to say, I'm Adobe Flash to the App Store and have reviewers continuously approve that this is Flash because Adobe's already got a Flash app there, Federighi says. And yes, he acknowledges a moment later that Flash is dead. A reviewer can also judge whether an app like a calculator should be asking for access to sensitive health data. No, exclamation point. And whether an app is dangerous, like an app that encourages people to post pictures of themselves speeding, et cetera, et cetera. And so those all seem like valuable things. Certainly when you're talking about lawyers and judges and courts evaluating this testimony, I can only sit here as a lawyer and not as a tech guy, uh, like an engineer at Apple and say, yep, that does sound like it makes sense. Even if it's on the margins, Apple probably should have the right to choose that that margin is worth what they want to put into app review. Would sideloading change security on iOS? Dramatically, Federighi says. No human policy review could be enforced because if software could be signed by people and downloaded directly, you could put an unsafe app up and no one would check that policy. Now, specifically, he means no policy review could happen on the other app store, not on his own app store, which is one of Epic's continued points of contention, which is your app store doesn't dissolve when we add other app stores. And that's a pretty good line of argument. There are multiple stores on the Mac, the judge asks. Why should we not allow the same stores to exist on the phone? Federighi, it is regularly exploited on the Mac. iOS has established a dramatically higher bar for customer protection. The Mac is not meeting that bar today. Today, we have a level of malware on the Mac that we don't find acceptable, Federighi says. And if you use that method on a platform with far more devices and more sensitive info, like the phone, it would get immediately run over. Now, this quote right here, some competitor of Apple should just start quoting Federighi in a commercial, right? The Mac is not good enough for customer protection, says Apple security guy, Federighi. And it's interesting because you do have this federal lawsuit. You are defending a very important revenue metric for your company with the App Store, with iPhone, with iOS in general. And you see kind of the value proposition here where you are willing in court under oath to say, yeah, the Mac isn't good enough. And Epic will fight against this and say, are you sure? Are you really telling us that the Mac isn't good enough as part of their cross? But it is certainly interesting to see how a company has to make these value judgments for exactly what it's going to say in court on questions like this one. It's well understood in the security community that Android has a malware problem and that iOS has succeeded so far in staying ahead of the malware problem. Judge mentions Micken's testimony that iOS and Android didn't have dramatic security differences. Federighi cites a recent Nokia report saying Android had 30 times the infections of iOS and another, don't know the source, saying it's something like 50 times. And that's how you lead in to this quote from Federighi. And again, 
This is kind of like common wisdom. He's got the easier case to make here because the common understanding in the security community, I could have pulled up a dozen articles that say something similar to this, is that Apple's methodology helps in some respects in keeping malware and other infections off of iOS. Android is much more insecure. And if you're going to fight in the opposite direction, like Mickens did, you probably need to bring some more specific logic to that party. I would have said maybe Android's more popular in a number of different jurisdictions where some of this is more rampant. A number of things you could have said that Mickens really didn't. He just said iOS and Android were similarly susceptible. And even the judge looked at that and said, hmm, I don't know. And now is asking this question with Federighi kind of teed up for a softball that says, no, no, it might be 30 or 50 times more infections, which is very useful testimony for Apple in saying, hey, we're doing something to earn that security pedigree. Apple's now going over privacy and transparency, protecting restrictions on App Store apps, categories of things that Micken said operating systems struggle with, but also suggested App Review didn't do a particularly good job with. Computers can't spot patterns, encouraging people to give up personal info, for instance, Federighi says. There are many entities that would love to get around these privacy protections. If they could distribute outside the App Store, they would. And again, I, it's, it's a matter of whether you think this is accurate in testimony. I know a lot of commenters have come in and said, all of this stuff, wall gardens, black boxes, Apple's ability to protect is all bupkis and shouldn't be taken on its face value. But all the court can do is evaluate these documents and these two experts and certainly at least as a layman from a technical standpoint lawyer, I look at it and say that passes the smell test, that there is some marginal benefit to what's happening here that maybe software alone can't do. And if there is that marginal benefit, then we start talking about whether or not Epic has a case uh, here at all. Apple's lawyer now brings up the enterprise program, which lets companies install apps outside the App Store system if they sign up with Apple. Federighi says there's a specific trust relationship between employer and employee, and Apple doesn't think all the risks found with public distribution apply. Does the program demonstrate that iOS can be perfectly safe even without app review? Not at all. Actually, quite the opposite. This has been an area of significant abuse, says Federighi. Now, this is an interesting kind of turn in the testimony. If you recall from what Epic and their security folks were saying is, that you already allow enterprise app stores for what it's worth. And that has already provided a vector for problems. That's where they brought up the Facebook issue as a way of telling the court, look, Apple has already made a value judgment that security is able to be compromised in these specific ways. And so they should not be allowed to just bar the door on the way that we would potentially compromise their security. Epic wouldn't frame it that way, of course. And Apple comes around and says, yeah, that's true. As a matter of fact, Enterprise has proven to be a big problem, and we're constantly looking at ways to fix it, which is an interesting way to do this. Rather than say, no, it's not that big of a problem, they do try to say there's a trust relationship and they can more easily identify potential problem vectors with kind of a smaller pool, which is one of the things the judge identified. But other than that, yeah, no, it's a problem. It's been an area of significant abuse. And you know, you might even be able to add to this if you were Federighi, we are, and we're looking at ways to, to halt that or to, to limit that abuse. Uh, to try to respond to Epic. It's an interesting kind of counterpunch to what Epic had said. Federighi says the App Store builds trust and confidence that makes users feel comfortable trying lots of apps, creating an unprecedented scale for developers. If they become more wary of downloading things, that's going to hurt developers, especially new ones. Many businesses have very different philosophies about privacy than Apple, he says. Users who have that expectation, they may choose to buy another product, like an Android phone. And this is the crux of everything that I have said really from the beginning of this series. You don't have to agree that 
the iOS, the iPhone, or the iPad actually is more comfortable, actually is an easier user experience, actually has better security, or protects your privacy better. You don't have to believe any remote part of that to acknowledge that there's probably a place in a competitive market for things like cell phones for a company to brand its product, to control all aspects of its operating system and access there too, and to sell it into the market on the premise that we're going to take care of you. You don't have to think about all the rest of the stuff that an Android user does or some other operating system user does. We're going to take care of you. You don't have to worry. You're going to just download the apps that you think you want to download. We've got people reviewing them. And that's what we want to sell to you as a product, not just a piece of hardware, but a concept, that goodwill, that consumer luxury good that we've talked about. And the notion of Epic's case, the theory, the reason that I reacted so strongly about it when it happened was in my opinion, significantly more anti-competitive than anything Apple is purportedly doing here, which is to say, if the walled gardens come down, if the court actually prohibits that business model, then the market itself is less variable, has less variety, has less consumer choice. Yes, you've all got all these app stores. Maybe you've got 400 like they have in China, but you don't have the choice to just buy something from a company like Apple, which you can think is the most evil company in the world, and say, Apple's gonna take care of me. Like many, 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 many consumers do. You can think they're idiots, but in my opinion, they, generally speaking, have the right to make that decision. Uh, And that's probably, at the end of the day, going to be where I think this case winds up because I don't think Epic has really convinced the court that consumers shouldn't have that decision in their back pocket and their ability to make it. But we'll see. Opinions can come out in many different ways. When users buy an Apple device, they're doing it because they've chosen an intuitive, consistent user experience that's safe and that they can trust. He's now asked about streaming games. Says iOS supports them, but requires them to meet certain human interface guidelines, which help maintain a consistent and easy user experience. This includes making streaming game services list every game separately because users are accustomed to the feel of each streaming game, which constitutes for the user a distinct application experience, being a distinct app that can be found outside the streaming service. Whoo! You know, I've commented on a lot of good answers from Apple folks today. This is not one of them. If you actually tear this apart, if you break this down, we do this, right, with corporate messaging here in virtual legality. This basically says we have streaming games listed separately because streaming games should be listed separately and people expect games to be listed separately because we make them list them separately. Okay, fair enough, Apple. That doesn't explain any of your logic or why this would be affected. Certainly Epic's theory of the case suggests you're doing it to protect your gaming revenue. Don't think Apple has actually offered a great defense about that here. Federighi continues by saying users are accustomed to setting parental controls on a per app basis, which is another reason why streaming services should have to list them separately. Maybe, or you could just do what some trailers and things do and say, whatever your highest uh, rated game is, MA, that's what's going to get implied to your entire store. That, no, no problem with parental controls. The, the, the parties that run the store might complain, uh, but, uh, or xCloud or GeForce Now, but you could do that and just say, yep, whatever's the highest is what we're going to limit because otherwise we can't limit access to anything within your store. He continues by saying you'd lose all the individual management. So now you have to give that aggregator app access to the sum of all the permissions of any app that you'd use. If an app needs location data, now they all have it potentially. Yeah, perhaps. Although I suspect there are technical ways to handle that. And once again, we come back to 
xCloud, GeForce Now, that line of attack, much stronger than Epic's. I wonder, honestly, if there won't be behind-the-scenes negotiations uh, between Microsoft and Apple or anyone else on those kinds of questions. Lawyer raises a question the judge has. How is cloud gaming different from Netflix? Media like music or video has always been managed in collections as part of apps. These are not different application experiences from the user's point of view. What? Video has always been managed in collections as part of apps. You know, maybe since the iPhone and the App Store started, but Netflix hasn't been around since the caveman days. Everything changes. Netflix started as a DVD company. Microsoft started as selling Xbox. Not sure how long they're going to be just selling Xboxes. Game Pass is very important to them. xCloud, important to them. NVIDIA, trying to make streaming games important to them. This is a ridiculous answer, in my opinion. Well, it's because they always have. And so we're not going to change that. That's absurd. Now, are they allowed to have that absurd judgment? Maybe, especially if Epic can't show that they're a monopoly actor and otherwise doing bad things in a different respect. Epic doesn't have GeForce now. Epic doesn't have xCloud, doesn't have a streaming game service right now. If they wanted to bring this claim on these grounds, they could have built those kinds of things, but they didn't. And instead you've got, yeah, maybe you make Apple look bad in a couple of respects. Maybe you get Microsoft on your side for some of these kinds of discussions and arguments, but it's not going to win you the case if you're Tim Sweeney and Epic Games. Federighi also says people have a 30 to 100 hour relationship with games that they don't have with other kinds of streaming media. Clearly, Mr. Federighi has never binged watch a long Netflix television show with his wife. Sorry, they have very, very long relationships. I can barely keep up. It's just a very silly answer because as I think has been made clear in this court case, Apple doesn't have a great reason for what it's doing with respect to xCloud and GeForce Now. And that's become apparent to me just with their lack of answers and Federighi is no different here. Epic's uh, lawyer is now cross-examining Federighi Now. Epic lawyer says that Apple doesn't have a single developer coming into court to defend it, despite it taking up relationships to developers or talking them up. That's fair, either not important to the law or otherwise. Lawyer comes back to the Nokia malware study previously mentioned. He notes Federighi previously said he didn't know of research on the prevalence of malware on iOS and Android. Federighi agrees, but I do have that data now. Lawyer brings up third-party stores that abuse the enterprise program. That was because Apple failed to conduct a thorough enough background check, isn't it? Look, I can't really answer that as a yes or no. So again, you're trying to peg Apple here, right? You're epic, you're in cross-examination. Federighi's given a lot of solid answers about why they do what they do. And, and one really bad answer as we just got finished talking about. And now you're trying to say, well, enterprise is abusive because you are not doing enough background, right? Maybe, but it's a weird line of attack for Epic to bring up because he also said we won't be able to do any background if we don't have any touch points with a given store. So I don't know exactly why you're harping on this. This sounds like App review should have more resources and should be better, but otherwise it might be effective. And we'll see Apple try to rehabilitate on redirect and say, well, here's the problem with corporations and they're, they're good ones. And I'll tell you why when we get there. The paper that they're now discussing discussed the usefulness of sandboxing and signing systems. Two things Federighi has said are inefficient or insufficient. The overall approach, lawyer says, includes features that are all part of current iOS security. But turning the page, it says our model will allow for third parties to distribute their own applications. It's left as a policy decision whether developers should have to go through a centralized store or be able to distribute apps on their own. There's a list of scenarios in this document, including one titled Guy in His Basement, where he submits his app for signing and distributes it. And another model is EA. 
So what Epic has here, this is pretty useful, is a document that was internal to Apple that said, there's a number of different ways we can go here. It's apparently 2007 that this document was made and whether or not we should require an app store. And they were deciding whether or not they would require one. Federighi does note that the document also says that signing will not solve all malware problems that they actually have from 2007 outside of this litigation from 2020 that signing certificates, what your expert says will solve all these things, will not. That's very good evidence that Mr. Federighi didn't just change his opinion for purposes of this litigation. Lawyer counters that it still doesn't say you need a centralized app store. Nothing in this paper suggests that once an application is signed, distribution through Apple would be safer. I actually think this line about signing not solving malware problems does suggest that there could be other ways to make it safer, but the lawyer is doing their job in trying to impugn Mr. Federighi's testimony. Now, this is an important point. Epic keeps trying to say, you don't need to do app review. You don't need this rule. You don't need an app store. And at a certain functional level, that might be accurate. Apple could have organized its business model in a completely different way. It could have charged an entry fee for every developer to do what it wants. It could have charged for the tools that it provided to these various developers or the engineering services that it provides. It could have decided to not charge for any of those things, but lock down the entire ecosystem. In fact, Epic's experts say if it were entirely locked down, somehow that would be more competitive in the market of phones and iOSs. Don't know how that is exactly. That's one of the places Epic gets tripped up. But they do argue that that is, in fact, the case. Instead, what you've got here is Epic saying things that don't necessarily matter to the law. You don't have to prove that this was the only way it could be done, that you need an app store. What you have to show is that you have a reasonable business justification. It isn't anti-competitive. And first and foremost, Epic has to establish that you're a monopoly provider of access to the product that you created. So this need concept, this your app review has to be perfect. App store has to do these things isn't accurate. Epic knows that, by the way. They're just trying to impugn testimony. There's no problem with that. The lawyer's doing their job in respect to this questioning. But at the end of the day, you don't need to show that you need the App Store. You just need to show that you had a reason for putting it through. And that 2007 document actually might wind up being pretty beneficial to Apple since it did show that they had concerns about malware at the time and tried to address them, presumably, by adopting their centralized App Store model. Epic lawyer going back to the issue Federighi raised in which opening up the app store leads non-privacy valuing apps to use third-party distribution and force users to go outside the official store. Lawyer notes this doesn't seem to have happened on Mac OS. Epic lawyer is basically arguing developers will want to stay on the app store because it's super popular and trusted, so Apple shouldn't worry about losing apps to app stores. And you understand at bottom, this is Apple's market to lose, correct? I don't understand that characterization. Now, this is interesting, right? Epic lawyer argues that yours is super trusted. You've provided all this value. You've said you do all these things. So if we just have our little Epic game store that has the 10 cent ownership that everybody on the internet hates, and we're not going to take any of your market share because, I mean, what are we going to do? We're, we're just Epic. You're super entrusted Apple. Now, of course, Epic has also engaged in a series of exclusives for the last couple of years to try to fight Steam that is maybe not going to allow people that want a specific app to stay in that app store. And that's part of the story as well. But also it goes directly against what we talked about at the top of the video, essential facilities, right? You're saying, well, what, what is this even important? Uh, you know, you're not even going to be affected by this. Epic Game Store is going to come in or anybody else is going to come in. It's not going to matter. And maybe it won't, but Apple should in general, absent approving a monopoly, absent approving of illegal activity, get the right to decide how its platform functions and operates. Lawyer describes sensitive things people do on PCs and Macs like telemedicine, notes Apple does things like market Macs to school children 
Uh, not directly to school children, Federighi says, but he agrees they're promoted for use by children. Yes, you're not trying to get the child to buy the computer, but you are certainly giving that parents to buy them for their children. And this entire line of questioning is trying to show you really think Macs are not secure, right? You have people go and get Photoshop, etc. You sell them for use by children. Lawyer is generally talking about the fact that Apple presents the Mac as being safe for kids, even when you download things from outside the App Store. At no point does Apple tell consumers that if they are seeking security, they should forego the Mac and buy an iPad. And I think that's accurate. I think this is a good line of attack from Epic. I do have to say that the Apple expert's testimony was a little bit more nuanced than that. He is a security guy. He's saying, look, the phone is more secure. I would like the Mac to be more secure. The business folks have probably said, I'm not allowed to make the Mac more secure. And so it's less secure. That doesn't mean it's insecure. It means that I'm not thrilled with the security on it, especially compared to the iPhone and the iOS ecosystem. Those are both capable of being true at the same time. But Epic, again, is doing the right thing by attacking that particular bit of testimony. Okay, Epic's lawyer is now referring to streaming apps, noting that there are no native game streaming apps. There are apps, says Ms. Robertson, and she's correct, that let you stream from a console computer and things that give you access to a cloud-based full computer desktop, but not mentioned here. We're looking at an email about a service called Liquid Sky that does cloud computing. What's the point here? Asks the judge. First point is apparently about the availability of non-game streaming apps. And there's going to be something about Apple's business incentives around cloud gaming services. And this is easily confused, but I think if Epic's doing their job right, the argument here is that you are making this distinction as Apple, not out of some reasonable stance on whether people expect games to be in app packages or not, but because you know darn well game revenue is your bread and butter and you're going to defend it. And that, that motivation is something that you can frame as anti-competitive. It just doesn't necessarily help Epic that much, and I don't think they've been very convincing on it to this point on day 13. Okay, we've moved back to Apple questioning. Lawyer is asking about signed and notarized apps that had malware. This is that rehabilitation period that we've talked about in prior testimonies. There was an implication that the Nokia report was inconsistent. He says he found a bit of data that he was referring to for a particular point. He also gets a chance to explain why it's so hard to stop enterprise programs. We talked about that. Businesses go under. It's hard to verify they exist. Lots of other potential hazards. And as a corporate lawyer, as a lawyer with plenty of startup companies in my client book, I can verify it is enormously difficult to do all of that CSI work and things that you see on TV to verify whether an entity exists, what it does, who the owners are, all of these various things, and pretty easily spoofed. So if you are Apple, I have a certain amount of empathy for this as I have gone about and tried to confirm various things uh, about clients, prospective clients, uh, rivals to clients. And if you've got a state or a jurisdiction that just has the name of an entity and a registered agent, good luck to you in doing all that legwork that you see on TV where it's like, oh, it's owned by this and this is actually a shell corp of this. That is very, very difficult to do. Uh, And certainly enterprises have the ability to hide themselves and hide who owns them and hide what they can do. So I do have that level of empathy with Apple on that point. We're done till tomorrow. Just two days of testimony to go. And you see this mirrored across the internet with the people that are reporting on this case. I got to tell you, I could do this all day. This stuff is fun. It is interesting. It's important and it's impactful. And I'm very glad that you have joined me for this conversation because we've got a couple of days of testimony to go. And then we'll, of course, have a video on what the overall opinion is, probably Court of Appeals stuff. I think this stuff is fascinating. Certainly, Epic has made their case loudly 
Have they made it well legally? I think that's a more open question, but leave your comments to this video below. Tell me how you think they're doing, how you think Apple's doing, and tell me how you think this is all going to turn out. We're getting into, well, the end game here, and, and I think it's getting about to be that time where we can try to adduce what we think is happening in this case. We'll save it a little bit for Tim Cook, but otherwise, I think it's about that time. If you like having these conversations, if you like me having them and talking about them with you, please consider supporting the channel. I am so, so happy to see so many more supporters over the course of this video. And I, I'm very appreciative of everybody that's either dropped me messages or subscribed or joined the Patreon, given tips on Streamlabs, bought a shirt. I'm so, so very thankful for all of you. And if you could just do that, subscribe, tell your friends, upvotes, everything else to help YouTube know that we are here and we're having these conversations. I so, so very much appreciate it. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.